Welcome back to the Blockchain Podcast. I'm your host, retired Lieutenant Colonel Bill Stebbins. Blockchain, your podcast for a combat veteran's thoughtful analysis of money, Bitcoin, and warfare. How they are inseparably interconnected and how they tangibly impact you. This is episode 007. And in this episode, we'll discuss that wars throughout history are primarily fought because of money. Not for ideological reasons, not to pursue or redress ethnic atrocities or subjugations or other ideas, but primarily because of money. Second, that the birth of our very nation and the profound concepts that emerged and were embodied in our Constitution were as a result of issues of money. Third, we're going to look at recent developments in the realm of warfare, specifically in the Ukraine theater. And oh, by the way, the Russians haven't won yet, and Ukraine hasn't won. It continues to be a grinding, trench warfare, war of attrition. Shocker. And then four, we're going to look at the emergence of Bitcoin in 2009, how it's, it's being increasingly viewed now by the state, Big S, is a threat to the state's monetary system. And we'll look at a recent counterattack, specifically by the SEC. So sit back, grab a frosty one if you're so inclined. Don't do that if you're driving. And allow me to potentially challenge your thinking. First of all, I want to open this up by suggesting to you that most, if not all, wars are fought because of money. And my first case in point is the birth of this nation. I would like to take you back to the 1700s for a short period. And from 1756 to 1763... There was a war called the Seven Years' War, and the continent over here in the, in the New World, it was called the French and Indian Wars. And the British won these series of wars, or this, this extended war, in 1763, but it was a very geographically dispersed uh, semi-world war, if you will. And the two competing belligerents were Great Britain and France. On the British side, they had allies, Hanover, Prussia, Portugal, Russia, and a few others. On the French side, their allies were Austria, Saxony, Spain, Sweden, and a few others. And in that regard, a major player on the British side was the British East India Company, a private company that had at its disposal its own security force, its own army, first ever in the history of the world, where a very large private company, if you will, had its own military force, On the French side, 
you had the French East India Company. And so these were the two belligerents. It was fought on the European continent. It was fought in Asia. It was fought in the American and the Canadian colonies. Again, this is the mid-1700s, Seven Years' War. And this was a very costly war for the belligerents, especially the British, who ended up winning it. But years ago, I went to school in a private British school in Mexico City, and I retained one of my textbooks from that time, written by R.E. Evans. It was called The War of American Independence. Very interesting, because as an American, here I am in a private British school reading a textbook uh, from the British perspective, speaking of the, uh, the rebellion. Interestingly, that little small slender textbook was called The War of American Independence. So that seemed like a very fair title coming from a, a, British, uh, a British historian and a British publisher. You would think that the British might entitle this the American Rebellion. But no, they called it the War of American Independence. A quote from that book says, The administration of empire trade had to be tightened up. Customs duties all over the empire now had to be rigorously collected. The customs service in America was collecting only 2,000 pounds a year, while salaries of its officials cost almost 8,000 pounds a year. And so this textbook in the quote that I just spoke to you was, was talking about the conditions at the end of the Seven Years' War, that essentially the treasuries, the coffers of Great Britain, were essentially empty. They were bankrupt. And so they now had to recoup those losses. Turning now to William Dalrymple's book, The Anarchy, which is a, an excellent book, speaking of the British East India Company and the British Empire and its uh, conquest of the world in the name of imperial trade. He says, and I quote, and this is speaking of the Seven Years' War. This time, it would be total war, and properly global, fought on multiple continents, and in ruthless advancement of world, worldwide British and French imperial interests. He goes on, Around the world, from Quebec to the Senegal River, from Ohio to Hanover, Menorca to Cuba, Hostilities were now finally breaking out between Britain and France in every imperial theater. And so it was an extensive war, essentially fought between the empires of Great Britain and France. And at the end of that, Great Britain won, but at an incredible cost. They won in 1763, but now... Uh, when you are a, a tyrant, when you're a king, and you're out of financing, when you're out of resources, uh, you're in a very tenuous situation. You have to replenish the coffers, or your tenure as king, your tenure as the leader of empire, is in jeopardy. Matter of fact, we see this with the first Gulf War in Saddam Hussein. After having fought Iran for 10 years, his coffers were essentially bankrupt and extinguished, and yet the Kuwaiti princes, 
were demanding that he repay the war debt. That's another story for another time. Um, I would offer to you, and I've, I've spoken to this in previous episodes, uh, where Washington gave Saddam Hussein the green light to go ahead and just resolve his own dispute. And so, but that's a, another story. But related to this concept that kings, dictators, tyrants, uh, when they're out of money, they have to replenish their coffers. And so they look at the cash cows that they have available. In this case, the colonies. As such, the war for American independence from Great Britain came about because Great Britain was, the British Empire was endlessly warring, endlessly in conflict, fighting the French Empire. And they got to the point of near bankruptcy. And so they began unilaterally taxing the colonies without their consent, outside of their colonial charters. In a colonial charter, uh, think of that as a contract. Like a contract, you have a <clears throat> you have debt when you buy an automobile, for example. And there's terms and conditions for buying that automobile. Well, so all parties know how much you owe, how much you have to pay on that debt every month, what the interest rate will be, etc. Well, all of the colonies in America had charters, they had colonial contracts, which, per the rule of law, stipulated how much tax they would pay to Great Britain. Well, at the end of the Seven Years' War, the king, the king of England, decided we're going to tax the colonies beyond what their colonial charter stipulated. He arbitrarily dictated, unilaterally determined, they're going to pay more. Well, this goes against contractual law, the rule of law, of which Great Britain had an incredible history, going back to the Magna Carta, of honoring the rule of law and governing at the consent of the governed. As you know from history, the colonists did not appreciate this. And this caused them to repeatedly try to work within the rule of law, try to work within the construct of the colonies and their relationship with King George and with Whitehall, you might consider that the Congress, um, the Washington, if you will, of Great Britain, to try to have these grievances addressed so that the rule of law would be uh, maintained, that the king would assent to the laws that have been agreed to, and that all failed. And so let's just take a look at the Declaration of Independence for a minute, which laid out the reasons why the colonies banded together and determined to not overthrow the king, not overthrow Great Britain, but they simply said, in a paraphrase, if you're not going to follow the rule of law, then just leave us alone. We dissolve our ties with you. You go your way, we're going our way. But you, you broke the contracts, and you won't listen, and you won't work within the rule of law, to redress these grievances that we're bringing up. And so this wasn't a rebellion 
That's not the proper term to use. This was a separation. Leave us alone. And so let's take a look at some of the reasons that they gave for breaking away, and we'll see if this rings any bells at all. And so this declaration says, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. In other words, they're saying, look, it's, it's right and proper for us to explain why we're dissolving uh, this, this connection that we have with Great Britain and to just lay it out to explain, to be transparent. And so it goes on and says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when this was being written, those three actually said life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. You may not have been taught that in school, but they changed it to happiness. But behind this is the idea that the ownership of property, the ownership of wealth, is an unalienable right given by God. The government doesn't give you that right. They don't determine how much property, how much wealth you're permitted to have. That this is an unalienable right. That you have the right to have possessions. That you have the right to your life. You have the right to liberty, to freedom. And you have the right to pursue, not to achieve, not to have, without exception, you have the right to pursue happiness, or originally to pursue property. Because our founding fathers knew that some people are determined to be very lazy. Some people are determined to make very bad decisions and make very, very unprofitable decisions and mistakes. Uh, there is no guarantee of wealth. You have to work hard. You have to make good decisions. You have to operate within the law. And so I'll continue. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from, from the consent of the governed. And this goes back to the Magna Carta, when there was a previous tyrant, English king tyrant, um, that the governed fought a war, held the king accountable, and the king signed this document, the Magna Carta, agreeing and conceding to the fact that those he governs over, they consent to him governing over them. But there are stipulations. It's not a one-way unilateral street where he just gets to dictate, as a dictator, the conditions under which they are ruled over. And that goes back to the, this rich tradition of the Magna Carta that then King George was violating at this point in American history. And the Declaration goes on to say that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, in other words, violating the right to life, the right to liberty, the right to pursuit of happiness, 
that when any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now those are profound words, and that is the heritage, that is the tradition. This is what gave birth to the amazing heritage of the United States of America in the, seven, in the late 1700s. Furthermore, most of the British founding fathers in the colonies wanted to stay British. George Washington did not want to break away from Great Britain. He wanted to have our differences resolved. And this is documented in the writings. But the Declaration goes on to say, Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shewn, some old English right there, hath shewn, that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. In other words, they're saying, look, prudence dictates that you shouldn't try to overthrow the government for light issues, for transient issues, for small things, only for huge issues that can no longer be overlooked. It goes on to say, But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under, under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. So what they were saying at this time in the Declaration of Independence was that we have sucked up quite a bit. We have put up with quite a lot of abuse from Great Britain, from the king, and we're done. And what they did in the Declaration was to lay out all of the abuses that they've been suffering and that they've been trying to have redressed and corrected but all they received from London, all they received from the king, was nothing, was silence, was an absolute unwillingness to look at things legally and to abide by an assent to laws already established. And so, as it begins to list out the grievances, the Declaration says, The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. In other words, the very first thing that they list is, is that this king sees himself as above the law. He is not assenting to and aligning to laws that are established. This is the first mark of a tyrant, 
They are above the law. They don't follow law. They're not accountable to anyone. This is the first of the abuses that the colonists laid out. And there are many abuses that are laid out in the Declaration, but in light of our present topic of the economy, the monetary system, ongoing warfare, perpetual warfare, uh, Bitcoin, I'm going to drop down to, to uh, I'm, not, I'm not going to read all of them. Another one is, he has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. In other words, he created a vast, numerous bureaucracy of officers of all different types to harass the colonists. I read this and I think of, you know, the IRS and all the agents that have been commissioned lately. Uh, the FBI, and you've been seeing this in the news and, and what they do. And it goes on and on. The Department of Homeland Security, the CIA, EPA, all of these offices, all of these bureaucratic um, extra-constitutional organizations with unelected officials that badger and pester the American people incessantly with a multitude, a myriad of algae growth rules and regulations and policies that just explode every single year. He has subjected us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution. And at this time, they're talking about the colonial charters. That he's not following the law, but he's subjecting the colonists to rules that don't apply to the colonies. The colonies had very specific charters under which they were to operate. He's subjecting them to rules outside of that. Another one, for imposing taxes on us without our consent. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us. Wow. I'm going to read that again. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us. In other words, entities and groups within the colonies. The king was empowering them and encouraging them and directing them to cause chaos, to cause disorder, to cause mayhem within the colonies. Finally, it concludes, it says, A prince, in other words, the king, a prince whose character is thus marked, by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. And I would offer set before us at all times in every generation in our nation. The question is always before us. Are we still a free people? Are we a free people anymore? Or are we a bunch of compliant, intimidated serfs, only concerned about the miserable little clutch of possessions that we're permitted to have, that we're allowed to have by the state, big S. Are we a free people anymore? And so, okay, so there's a few pages of American history going back to the birth of this nation, um, showing our heritage and, uh, you know, what's my point in all of this? And it may be self-evident to you, you may already understand this, is that in most of the major conflicts and wars worldwide, 
money is at the source of it. Power, money, they're inseparably entwined. And when you dig deep, when you start looking, even the birth of this nation, you have a tyrant not staying within the rule of law, broke, essentially. He broke the empire financially because of the Seven Years' War, his, his ongoing global war with the, the French Empire and the two East India companies, British East India Company, French East, East India Company. In the aftermath of that, he determines outside of the colonial charters, the colonial contracts, that he will uh, try to refurbish his storehouses of wealth by exorbitantly taxing the colonies. And this led to, in fact, the separation of these 13 colonies from the British Empire, and then the emergence of one of the world's uh, most incredible nations in terms of, not that the people were any better, than people anywhere else in the world. I, I, I don't hold to that. I don't believe that. But the, the ideas that the colonists enshrined in the Constitution were as a result of looking at human history and seeing what gave rise to tyrants, what gave rise to slavery, what gave rise to the oppression of the ruled. And they instituted protocols, they instituted policies to try to, as long as possible, reduce the power, reduce the potentiality that tyrants could come to power and accumulate wealth, centralize wealth, centralize power, and begin oppressing a future generation of people. And they were very successful in that regard. But the Constitution as we know it now is not faithfully followed and has been perverted and watered down and decalcified and robbed of its essential nutrients. And this is where we are today. And I spoke in previous episodes about how our financial system, our monetary system, was unpegged from any kind of wealth, any kind of intrinsic value, taking it off of the gold standard and moving to fiat currencies. And one thing that fiat currency or paper currency, a monetary system based on essentially nothing but the faith and trust in the United States government, that one thing that kind of a financial monetary system enabled it was the financing of warfare. Now, under the fiat system, governments, and especially the United States government, no longer had to live within their means, no longer had to live within a budget, no longer had to go to the American people to explain the reasons for going to war to get them to agree to consent to pay for wars through taxes, through raising bonds, etc., for warfare. When we moved to a fiat currency system, now the government has the 
unilateral ability to create money out of thin air and to then finance warfare, which is exceedingly profitable. Not for you, not for me. Profitable for the military-industrial complex that general-turned-president Dwight Eisenhower warned us about the emergence of the military-industrial complex. And for 23 years, I saw it in operation firsthand as I came into consciousness and awareness of the larger macro issues that occur in the military vis-a-vis the nations of the world. And so as our nation has progressed, the monetary system, has morphed into a Frankenstein monster, completely dominated and manipulated by the government, by the state. And we have the emergence of perpetual war, where there's always a conflict, there's always a demonized entity out there. Because this is very convenient and feeds the incredible beast of the military-industrial complex. By the way, I've mentioned this before, our military defense budget the largest in the world, larger than the next nine military budgets combined. And another shocking development, oh, by the way, who do you think is the number two, uh, number two country with the largest defense outlays? That would be China. But who's number three? Reported this week, number three, Victor Davis Hanson. Um, in a recent article, showed how Ukraine has the third largest defense budget now in terms of outlays in the world as a result of uh, many nations contributing material and pledges of financial support. Ukraine, number three defense financial outlays in the world. $130 billion pledged to Ukraine just since uh, February of 2022. $130 billion in light of our national debt. Since we spoke last, uh, our national debt has continued to climb. Our national debt is now at $32 trillion. $32 trillion. And if you are a taxpayer and you're listening to this podcast... You might be interested as to what your portion of that national debt is, what your responsibility of that debt is. I hope you have it saved up for when the bill comes due, when the the butcher bill comes due for the national debt. If you're a taxpayer, you will owe $249,403 and approximately 50% of adults in the United States don't even pay taxes. But if you're the 50% that does, your commitment is higher, $249,000. And so initially you may not be interested in history, in the history of this nation, in colonial history. You may not be interested in what has occurred with dictators in the past, tyrants in the past, why wars have started in the past. You may want to just remain blissfully ignorant in the time being. But the national debt doesn't just go away 
because you're not interested in these things. And I respect it. Financial matters, political matters, matters of warfare may not be of interest to people. This is, this is not an issue. I understand everyone has different interests. But the fact is, you may not be interested in these issues, but these issues are interested in you because they will impact you in the future. And they are impacting you now with our economy. You see, we just concluded 20 years of warfare in various locations throughout the world. Just like our our royal ancestor, King George, fighting wars for seven years throughout the, the globe. Well, now it seems that we have taken on his persona. And we have just fought 20 years, longer than 20 years, the, the so-called global war on terror. You know, this is declaring war on a noun, not a personal noun, not like an entity, like a nation, but, but a war on a noun, terror. And I've often asked, well, who signs the documents of surrender to end this war on terror? Who is a spokesperson for terror? Worldwide, that says, you know what? Okay, Uncle, good, you've won. I'll sign. I'll, I'll, I will surrender. No, there's no such thing. A global war on terror is like a war on crime. It's like a war on, on evil. It never ends. And this is by design. And our nation took it hook, line, and sinker. And so over 20 years of warfare and occupation in Iraq and Afghanistan, Iraq, about... $2 trillion spent on that. Afghanistan, about $3 trillion invested. And Brown University Cost of War Project estimates about $6.4 trillion overall invested in the war on terror overall in 20 years. And deaths for what? It didn't secure the nation in any substantial way. But it did expedite the transfer of wealth from you to a privileged group of elites in Washington, in government, and in uh, the military-industrial complex and businesses that serve that beast. Iraq and Afghanistan were abject failures. Syria, still a hot, unresolved conflict. No resolution of that conflict at all. Libya and Benghazi, if you recall that, you know, tied to our involvement in Syria, where we ostensibly ousted the dictator Muammar Gaddafi, and yet had our ambassador, J. Christopher Stevens, left out to dry and slaughtered. This was September 2012. You may have forgotten that already. Global war on terror. What did it achieve? Well... $6.4 $6.4 trillion invested, which contributed nicely to the $32 trillion national debt that we have. And so now our government's doing everything it can to involve us squarely in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, which pushes us towards a mishap or a miscalculation that could result in nuclear war of some type. And, of course, the whole conflict there has been uh, 
watered down to real easy sound bites for you to digest and absorb and, and parrot and embrace and cheerlead for. Evil Russia overstepping boundaries, occupying a sovereign territory. Ukraine, against all odds, fighting back to keep the evil empire and Vladimir Putin, who's the devil, to get him back within his state. And, and absolutely we need to support this and NATO needs to come to the defense and vanquish the, uh, the tyrant from the north. You know, very, very cognitively easy for you to understand that. Why are we so interested in Ukraine? Why do we learn nothing from our 20 years of occupation ending in absolute pathetic disasters and loss of treasure and life and continue to promote the genius generals that gave us failures and those those theaters that subjected us to public humiliation of our Afghanistan route. Why, why are we so, so enthusiastic about Ukraine? Well, if you're if you've been following the news in any way, shape, or form lately, you've seen at least implications. You've seen suggestions that our current president accepted a $5 million bribe, along with his son, Hunter Biden, very, very gifted, very gifted son. He's proud of his son. Very gifted son, Hunter Biden, also received allegedly $5 million and what, what we'll call bribes from Burisma. Burisma, a big energy corporation, Ukrainian energy corporation. This is before uh, the Russian invasion. This is when Joe Biden was the vice president under Obama. And you've seen that a whistleblower came forth with documentation. A whistleblower saying that, that she had proof, bank statements, paper trail, recordings, proof she is willing to come to Washington, come to the House, come to Congress, and show her the evidence. And if you're tracking the news, you also saw that, you heard that the FBI came out, I believe it was last week, saying that uh, they couldn't guarantee the protection, the safety of a whistleblower with this kind of information. Well, we just heard reports today, yesterday, as a matter of fact, that uh, the whistleblower, who was the wife of the former owner of this company, this Ukrainian company, Burisma, Mikola Lysine, well, Mrs. Lysine was willing to come to the house, hand over all the proof, show the evidence. Well, it looks like uh, she's dead now. She died. We're, we're looking for details. We don't know the details at this point, but she's dead now. I'm sure of, sure of natural causes. Maybe, maybe she had a sickness we didn't know about. If you have been watching any of the news lately, you have also seen video of Vice President at the time, Joe Biden, speaking about his dealings with Ukraine about his withholding, his threat to withhold $1 billion of U.S. financial aid from Ukraine, 
This is 2016. This didn't happen uh, anytime recently. See, this, this, this whole Ukraine-Russia thing has been going on for some time. Follow the money. Follow the money. You can see the video yourself. It's all over Twitter. It's all over the news. Uh, at this time, there had been a Ukrainian investigator, a journalist, investigating Burisma, investigating them for money laundering and corruption. Essentially, Vice President Biden told Ukraine, the president at that time, Poroshenko, that uh, this investigation needed to end. That if this investigation of Burisma didn't end, uh, don't worry about your $1 billion of aid for Ukraine. Well, as you might guess, the investigation ended. Investigation ended. And Burisma, $5 million to Vice President Biden, $5 million to his son, Hunter. And... Hunter was given a job sitting on the board of directors for Burisma. He's apparently well accomplished in the energy field in this, in this industry. Why would he be given such a lucrative job making $80,000 a month? $80,000 a month to be on the board of directors of Burisma. Well, I mean, it just keeps coming. Aside from the wife whistleblower, who is now resting in peace, dead. At this time, we rewind the tape a little bit, back into 2016. There's a recording, again, you can find this very easily on the internet. The Ukrainian president at that time, Poroshenko, was talking with Biden and was concerned because Poroshenko's previous aide, Anashenko, a gentleman named Anashenko, had given, had, had given the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice, documents and evidence incriminating the Vice President of the United States and his son with the receipt of bribes, $5 million each. And there's a recording. Please go listen to it now. If you don't believe me, where Poroshenko was concerned that the FBI was going to start investigating this now. And you hear Biden saying, no, no. The FBI, is, they've closed this case. They, they will not be investigating this. But it goes back even further. You can find on the internet right now with a quick search, 2014, November 2014, Late Senator, Arizona Senator John McCain, and South Carolina Senator, still in, still in office, by the way, you know, these, these guys never go away, career politicians, Lindsey Graham, 2014, rattling sabers in Ukraine, encouraging a group of, a, a, a motley crew of folks there, I've seen the video, encouraging them to, to uh, oppose Russia, to hang in there, that America's with them that they need to fight back. 2014. These things didn't just happen recently when Russia crossed the border. You know, I would personally be interested to see if Lindsey Graham or the late Senator John McCain received any bribes 
from Ukraine. I'd be really interested to see if a journalist would take that on to kind of look into that. Lindsey Graham right now, he's on the news every week, very active in advocating for Ukraine. Follow the money. And so the lesson to be learned here is that our, our government knows how to profit off of conflict, off of warfare. We don't know how to actually win wars anymore. Well, okay, to be fair, we don't know or we're unwilling to restrict ourselves to righteously, morally defensible conflicts. That's, that's probably the more accurate statement. Uh, we, we don't limit ourselves to righteous wars, to morally defensible conflicts. No, we sign up for any viable conflict out there because they're cash cows. They enrich, they empower, they nourish the military-industrial complex. Vietnam's a great example. The Iraq occupation is a great example. Afghanistan, a great example. Now Ukraine is, is quite profitable. And as I reported in my last episode, we're also looking to go into Peru going into Peru. And so as I left military service of my own accord and in lieu of promotion, in lieu of a command that I was offered, you know, as I came to awareness of what was occurring, this question I asked myself repeatedly, and I asked to all of my colleagues now, all of my good friends and buddies still in the military now who've continued, who stayed in, quite a few military students I've had through the years, still in the military. And I, I ask you, as I asked myself, did you enter military service to be a mercenary? Was, was this your ambition? Was this the reason you joined? And I know that most, if not all of you, that was not the reason you joined. You joined as I did to serve, to serve this nation, to defend this nation. You didn't join to be a mercenary, to do the groundwork on behest of tyrants and dictators and folks who are simply enriching themselves outside of the rule of law, outside of morally defensible reasons. Did you enter military service to be a political hack? To be an unthinking, unquestioning, obsequious lapdog, regardless of the morality and the criminality and the unconstitutionality of whoever would assume the oval or the awful office? And by awful, I mean excrement. Was this your motivation? You know, of course it wasn't. But are you now a rationalizing, compliant mercenary for the state? Look, if the evidence is true that the commander-in-chief accepted a $5 million bribe from Ukraine when serving as the vice president or serving himself as the vice president, are, can you say that you're comfortable serving him now? Is your personal integrity that situational, that compliant? 
that malleable, that weak, that subjective. You know, I talk to subordinate officers throughout my time in the military and also in the Command and General Staff College when I taught. I talk to them about red lines. If you don't think about your red lines in advance, lines beyond which you will not go, then the more invested you're in, the more time you log in, uniform, it's sunk costs. You won't take a stand. You won't do the morally right thing. When you're confronted with incredibly perplexing dilemmas. I say perplexing. There's not, there's not much here to perplex you. If a commander-in-chief took bribes, are you willing to serve under him? Is that morally defensible? We've seen the endless parade of general officers who have sacrificed their integrity, their honor, their selflessness. They've absolutely rendered those vapid, null and void, and are serving themselves. Folks who claim to be apolitical, but are hyper-political, hyper-political in their actions. I don't listen to people's words as proof of their character. I look at their actions and what they actually do. I look at the logic behind their ideas and concepts, their motivations. And so the rationalization that is often proffered is working within the system to be a source of good. But that's a rationalization. Working within the system to make it better, it never works. I should say it rarely, rarely ever works. And especially when the organization is so corrupt, so compromised, so entrenched in unethical practices, working within it does not work. You're, you're swimming upstream and you have no tail fins to propel you. It's a rationalization. You see, once you become aware, once you see systemic policy is diametric to your own values and principles, diametric to the Constitution of the United States, once you're finally aware, it's then your duty to separate. I would suggest that separation is the only path to avoid, then, moral complicity. When you become aware, And you often hear, and I've heard it many times, and I appreciated it many times, citizens, when they know that I was in the military, telling me that, that they were thankful for my service. Thank you for your service. We you know it's only meaningful, it's only valid, if that service was righteous, if it was honorable, if that service was employed in pursuing moral ends. If it wasn't, all service in uniform is not deserving of gratitude and thanks. Quite sure that in Nazi Germany, before the system imploded, a lot of folks were very appreciative of the, of, of the Nazi sh- soldiers, of the stormtroopers. 
but that didn't have universal objective moral worth, did it? Our nation expects, and they say thank you for your service, they expect us to be selfless, to be doing the right thing, to be morally above board, to be serving something higher than ourselves. This is their expectation, to know that we have a corrupt system and to accept that praise is very inconsistent and hypocritical. And it also dishonors the lives of those incredible men and women who sacrificed, had their lives taken from them while in uniform, serving these conflicts that had no tangible benefit in securing this nation, but were engaged upon for reasons that weren't transparent, for reasons that were disingenuous and immoral. And so here we are with an explosion of our national debt, an explosion of the creation of dollars out of thin air, the vast minority of it printed on paper, the vast majority of it created out of thin air, and placed on bank ledgers, just the creation of money, the system emerging very clearly in 1913 with the 16th Amendment of the Constitution, 16th Amendment, that Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes, income tax created 1913, not prior. This isn't a thing that has to happen in a nation, the collection of income tax. It's something that the new economic geniuses, the new economic theorists foisted upon the American people without their consent. A taxes on incomes, 1913, at the same time that the Federal Reserve Act was passed. Federal Reserve Act that created a for-profit private institution led by unelected leaders answerable to anonymous shareholders that receive dividends, that receive profits. From the operation of the Federal Reserve, you thought it was a government institution. No, the Federal Reserve is private, and it has a large say in the control of our monetary policy, all of this occurring in 1913. And what occurred directly after 1913, after this change in monetary policy comes about. Well, suddenly the nation has the ability to create money ex nihilo, out of nothing, not tied to gold, not tied to anything of intrinsic value. And we have World War I raging into existence. This is when the major economies of the world departed from the gold standard. They, they all moved, like the U.S., moved to fiat government-controlled money. They moved to central banking. You see, as long as governments could print more money, and their citizens, as long as their citizens would believe, would accept that this paper money had worth, well, then they could finance well beyond their gold reserves. They could finance well beyond their needs for taxation. They didn't need to raise taxes to finance wars. They would just print more money. 
and this has been the pattern. And of course, World War II was just World War I Part Two, and the hyperinflation visited upon Germany after World War I, the Treaty of Versailles, gave rise to conditions where an, an incredibly evil tyrant came to power. And World War I Part Two commenced. Wars are fought primarily for financial reasons. And with the current system that we're under, that means that the national debt will skyrocket. That means that our monetary system is incredibly vulnerable, incredibly brittle. And did you know we did not have these cycles of recession, depression, inflation, hyperinflation before we moved to this current monetary system? It didn't occur. We accept it now. We just accept that money devalues over time. We just accept that as a is a face value truth. But this is a lie. This is not a condition that has to occur. It's not inevitable. It's only the byproduct of adopting our current monetary system of fiat currency controlled by the government. And so, 2008, the 2008 economic recession, the collapse, the day after Lehman Brothers imploded, the anonymous Satoshi Nakamoto dropped an eight-page white paper Halloween night explaining the concept of Bitcoin. Shortly thereafter, dropping his 30,000 lines of code and activating the Bitcoin protocol, launching the network, establishing the first 50 blocks, the first the genesis block of 50 Bitcoin, and then in mid-2010, disappeared. Disappeared. No one knows who, who Natoshi, or Satoshi Nakamoto was. A group, a man, a woman, a group of people, unknown. And Bitcoin has emerged as a alternative store of wealth a way that folks can store value, can store their wealth in a protocol, in a vehicle, untouchable by any human government. It's now been 14 years. It's not been hacked once. It's resilient. As long as there's an internet, there's Bitcoin. Not to replace current fiat currencies of the world, not to overthrow governments, overthrow the monetary systems that they have, but to operate side by side as an alternative for sovereign individuals that wish to protect their wealth. This certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, the pursuit of happiness. the God-given right to benefit from the fruit of your labor, to be able to secure your wealth from plunder, from the plunder of tyrants. 
not to overthrow any existing systems, not to engage in revolution or warfare, insurgency. And yet, when you have something that actually works better in certain functions as a store of wealth, as a preserver of your wealth, when you have a tyrant, when you have a state, big S, uh, they don't like competition. They don't like things that can't be controlled. And so you've seen recently that the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, under Chairman Gensler, uh, filed suit against two different exchanges, Binance and Coinbase. And the Wall Street Journal, in its short little podcast it has every week, they interviewed Gensler about these actions, about going after what they lump in altogether as cryptocurrency. We know that Bitcoin is separate and distinct and is different than cryptocurrency. Uh, but normies don't understand this, so they lump it all together and see it as a threat. And so Gensler was interviewed on the podcast The Journal, Wednesday, 14 June. And it's very instructive, the part I'm going to read to you, uh, his viewpoint, and this gives you insights into how the state thinks about the monetary system, and it's their prerogative to control it. And they're not amenable to contemplating any other possibilities. Gensler says, it's a matter of relative risk. We have a financial system with all its strengths and weaknesses, which largely stays within the public policy norms and the laws we've put in place as a society. The risk is actually that crypto somehow undermines that traditional system of trust. That when you use a brokerage app, you use a robo-advisor, or even you pick up a phone and you talk to some humans at a bank or a broker-dealer, you trust in that system. The greater risk is that somehow the crypto field undermines that trust in our traditional system. End quote. Wow. Very illuminating. You see, the current fiat monetary system of the government, in fact, depends on trust, like he says, and he reveals it. We trust that the Federal Reserve is doing the right thing. We trust that the Treasury is doing the right thing. We, we trust that the big banks are doing the right thing, that the chairman of the Federal Reserve has our best interests at heart. Trust. Well, you know, as a Bitcoin enthusiast, that it's a trustless system, a trustless system. In other words, we don't trust anyone. And that makes the system, that makes Bitcoin much infinitely better because it's 100% transparent. So many of the evils, so many of the problems we have in our current financial system are because of this trust. We trust that the government's doing the right thing despite the overwhelming continual evidence that quite often they don't. We trust that the president wouldn't confiscate our gold 
And yet Franklin Delano Roosevelt did exactly that and criminalized citizens possessing gold and made this a criminal offense. We trust that the government has our best interests at heart, our economic prosperity at heart, and yet they force us to use a money that steals from us, a money that is always devaluing, a money that gives rise to ongoing persistent inflation to where we're accustomed to think that that is normal, that it's inescapable, which is false. I'll quote again. Gensler says, The risk is actually that crypto, crypto somehow undermines that traditional system of trust. In other words, that traditional system where you remain ignorant of our current monetary system such that it can continue to be manipulated by the government and used by them to make themselves richer, whereas you become more impoverished. That system of trust, they need to keep it in place. You need to keep trusting their hand on the money printer. You need to keep trusting their manipulation of the fiat currency. The last part of his quote, the greater risk is that somehow the crypto field undermines that trust in our traditional system, end quote. Well, I don't trust the current monetary system. I have all the evidence in the world to know why I don't trust it. And it's not because of crypto. It's not because of Bitcoin. Bitcoin isn't undermining my trust. What the government and successive administrations have done for almost 100 years, what they have done is undermined my trust in the system. Bitcoin, on the other hand, has provided hope it's provided an alternative to protect my wealth, to protect my generational wealth, to keep it from the grubby hands of career politicians who've demonstrated empirically, repeatedly, that they don't have my best interests at heart and that they will use my money to empower themselves, to enrich themselves, to continue to make their little clique of kleptocrats wealthier. There is no risk for you if trust is properly undermined in the current system. The risk is for them. The risk is for the statists, those at the helm, those who think they're the smartest people in the nation that need to control monetary policy, that need to control you, that need to deprive you of your wealth and redistribute that wealth. The risk is to them. The risk is not to you. And Bitcoin did not cause risk. It caused a safety capsule, a means of opting out of the current system in terms of safeguarding your wealth. Quoting Gensler again, we have a financial system with all its strengths and weaknesses, which largely stays within the public policy norms and the laws we've put in place as a society. End quote. Absolutely not. We as a society did not put these policies in place. We did not put these laws in place. You, the state, unilaterally 
through unelected agencies like the Federal Reserve and the chairman, um, you've unilaterally put policies in place, have made decisions on monetary policy without transparency, without debate, without uh, the consent of the governed. You, you know, trying to make it look like we've agreed to this current system and how it operates now and how it functions. And, and no, you don't stay within the policy norms and the laws you put in place. Our financial system bails out banks, bails out the big banks every single time. And when I say bails them out, you bail them out. I bail them out. The taxpayer bails them out because of the organs of the state. There are private banks, but they do the state's bidding. They're too large to fail. They're not permitted to suffer the consequences of bad management, of immoral, unethical management. And so I would take much offense to most of what Gensler has to say here. So he goes after two of the exchanges to see how much water he's going to be able to collect, how much traction he's going to be able to get in this first opening blast of attacking two cryptocurrency exchanges, and we'll see what he's able to do. These exchanges are going to fight back legally, but we see how law is administered in this nation. There are chosen winners and chosen losers. Justice is no longer blind. In this nation, it seems at times. And so Gensler can attack the exchanges, what he doesn't realize. And apparently he taught a course on cryptocurrency at, at MIT. But he doesn't necessarily realize, apparently, that you can't attack Bitcoin like an insurgency. And I've dealt with counterinsurgency warfare. The more you attack it, the stronger you make it. And you don't have access to the sanctuary, the digital sanctuary of the 30,000 lines of code upon which Bitcoin operates. All you can do is attack the peripherals. And so we'll continue to follow ongoing Bitcoin news, uh, the war in Ukraine. And if you found this podcast, you find blockchain in any way entertaining, insightful, thought-provoking, well, look, I'd ask you to follow the podcast. I'd ask you to share it. And I'd also ask you to please take a few minutes to rate it because that has impact and that helps it to be distributed more widely, again, if you find value in it. Until then, wherever this podcast finds you, I hope that you're healthy and well. I hope that you're living free, and I do appreciate the time that you grant me and listening to the ideas that I communicate on this podcast.